Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Welcome back to The Art of Range. Matt Reeves with the Forest Service out of Missoula, Montana, is a repeat guest here because he works at making large-scale data on forage and fire risk available to people who have to make decisions about range and forest management. And this stuff is new enough that it's worth revisiting it periodically. Uh, Matt is one of the main creators of FuelCast, a website providing continually updated fuel loads across the West based on uh, live climate and satellite data. One of the key features of this website is the ability to identify geographic areas with significant deviation from historical fuel conditions. And it's not news to any rangeland people that above average forage production in the summer usually means higher fire risk. For some of us, this is one of those big years and other regions have the opposite problem, now that of not enough grass. But an above average year is mostly good for livestock producers as long as it's not all cheatgrass, but it's definitely a mixed bag for fire prone plant communities and the people affected by them. So we're going to swing back and talk about uh, the, the function of the FuelCast website as well as some of the actual details of this year. Matt, welcome back. Thanks, Tip. I'm glad to be here. Uh, the the FuelCast website has changed a bit in the last year, at least cosmetically, but uh, as best I can tell, and you can correct me, I think it still provides the same key plant community attributes related to plant production, the total pounds of per acre range vegetation across all vegetation types, the deviation of the current year's production relative to a 20-year average, total herbaceous production as distinct from all vegetation, and then total herbaceous production from annual plants. Is that correct? Yeah, plus or minus, that's right. <laughs> okay. And then the FuelCast site also has the data on the amount of standing dead plant material and the, the annual peak vegetation in pounds per acre uh, attached to the RPMS, the Rangeland Production Monitoring Service. And then uh, those things are all combined into various fire prediction indices. So that's my summary based on some of the stuff you've got on the website. How would you characterize the intent of FuelCast for those who may be hearing this for the first time? Well, I'd start by saying that we don't develop fire prediction indices. I think maybe what you're referring to is the surface fire behavior film model product that is available. And that is the product that drives most of our uh, decision support systems around fire. For example, the Wildland Fire Decision Support System, or WUFDIS, or IFTDIS, they use a surface fire behavior film model uh, as part of the data suite that's needed to drive fire behavior projections. Hmm. Um, but we, we don't need to go into detail with that. Just recognize that we don't pro produce a separate uh, fire index, if you will. It's it's a surface fire behavior film model product that's necessary for estimating where fires might be, say, after an ignition, where they might be in one hour, five days, 10 days, 20 days, you know, that sort of thing. 
Got it. And what was the, what was your original intent with putting this data together into FuelCast? Mostly fire fire risk evaluation? Yeah, absolutely. And for both tactical and strategic purposes, because, you know, in the beginning of, of the land fire program, I was the land fire fuels team leader. And I recognized that we didn't have a reliable way of updating those surface fire behavior fuel model data from land fire at regular intervals. So I wanted to fill that gap by offering, you know, monthly, if not weekly on up to annual depictions of fuel to help us change those fire behavior film models, because that's, again, what drives most of the fire behavior projections, especially on large wildfires. Mm-hmm. And what are you seeing this year? Well, I think the big stories this year, which we began documenting in February on our own um, on our own show, you know, reading the tea leaves where we talk about what's happening around the West. Uh, we started out by examining the result of the monsoon in the Southwest from last year and how that was manifest in the standing dead and how that translated into surface fire behavior film models. And we said, starting in February, that the Southwest was a real tinderbox and that they were way above average and sometimes, you know, two to three to four to even five X in terms of productivity of fine fuel. You know, there was places down in the Southwest where the Cytos grandma, for example, was uh, knee high to thigh high, and it was fairly continuous, you know, producing 3,000 to 4,000 pounds per acre very easily. Hmm. Recognizing that that was a, you know, a pretty extreme situation, we started talking about that in February. Um, So that was... The, the viewpoint in February, and of course, the Southwest has had a very significant fire year, as you know. Two of the largest wildfires in New Mexico history occurred this year, in part due to very dry fuel, uh, in some cases kiln-dried lumber dry. Um, but you couple that, the large diameter fuels being very dry, with the tremendous growth that occurred from the monsoons of 2021, and you got a real interesting situation to evaluate. Uh, Beyond that, we said the Southern Plains looked like it was going to be pretty well a wipeout. I think Northern Texas and uh, parts of Oklahoma and then and down into Central Texas, uh, we we thought would be really hit by prolonged drought. Um, And there were strong indicators of that even before we started making those calls in January. And overall, I think that's born to be true. It's been real dry down there. All you have to do is look at NCWeb, and you will see all the fires that are occurring right now in Texas. Also on our radar uh, was uh, a little bit later in the year, we started seeing pulses of growth in the cheatgrass, particularly the Snake River Plain, and then up through parts of eastern Oregon and more extensively into eastern Washington. And so cheatgrass became one of our major focus areas, and we were monitoring that over, you know, three or four months. And it's really turned out to be a very significant year for cheatgrass. And in some cases, as you know, as we talked about the other day, Tip, we're looking at two or three or four-fold increase in cheatgrass um, around the central basin country there, just north of the Columbia River, on up to the east side of the Cascades. And so I also think that that part of the the country was very interesting from a fuel standpoint. And we were capturing that not only in the 
just the fuel cast product, but in the reading the tea leaves program. And in there, we like to bring together a variety of indicators, including fuel cast, including information from USGS, um, who puts out plus or minus um, every three weeks a new estimate of the cover of, inv- of annual grasses. And mm-hmm. so we also use that to, you know, more correctly assess the fuel situation. And finally, we very oftentimes use um, the crop chasma soil moisture system in addition to those other two products that I just mentioned to kind of read the tea leaves and estimate what we think is probably going to happen. Right. Yeah, the, the, the predictions regarding cheatgrass – in eastern Washington, and maybe much of the inland Northwest, certainly seem uh, to be borne out. The numbers seem uh, al- almost too large to be true. But then, but then you drive you drive through much of eastern Washington, and it uh, it literally looks like a shallow ocean of fuel. You mentioned that you had yes. come through eastern Washington, looking at some of that. Where did you drive through? Well, I was primarily limited to the Channel Scabland area, so we're talking the the areas that are north and west of Sprague, or if you're more familiar with with Moses Lake, we're talking north. I made several transects north and east of that area because it's an area I know very well, and so I have a a pretty good background knowledge of what should be normal. And even Mm -hmm. in some of the lithosolic kinds of areas that typically – don't produce much at all except stiff sagebrush and maybe some some short uh, sandberg bluegrass. We're still looking at very significant cheatgrass yields, and I do have some photos that I'm going to share on my next reading the tea leaves to that effect. I couldn't believe it. Uh, aside from what's been going on in the southwest, how has that translated into uh, fire frequency or size or severity? across the West. It, it seems like there's plenty of fires every year, but you know, the extent to which fire makes the national news isn't necessarily a reliable indicator of what may be more subtle differences in, uh, you know, actual ignitions or fire size, et cetera. Any thought on that? Well, I would say that if you compared last year, which was completely epic to this year, and you were to look at the number and er- the number of fires and also the areas that were burned according to those fires, I think at this time last year, was a, a much more significant wildfire season overall, you know, nationally, um, than in, in most of the years past. I mean, just look at California alone, and there were some really large wildfires that took place there, while there were wildfires in, in Washington State, in Montana, and uh, Nevada, and so on and so forth. Also, very large wildfires in eastern Oregon. And right now, we don't really see that uh, as much. But again, I would emphasize that, you know, try telling that to someone in New Mexico right now where they've seen two of the largest wildfires in in state history. Again, due to prolonged drought that has dried out the large diameter fuels. And then we've got a real carpet, a rich carpet of grasses that came in from the monsoons and it was a real tinderbox. Right. It's a perfect storm. Now, any idea? I've I've lived here in Ellensburg, Washington, for twenty two years, and and I don't think I've seen a year quite like this in terms of forage production. And mostly east of us, at lower elevations, the cheatgrass 
production. And I think that's true across much of Oregon as well. Uh, do you have any idea what is the relative magnitude of this year's annual forage production relative to longer term historical conditions? Well, overall, I think if you took a state level average of the types of areas you're talking about, you'd probably find increases from, say, 50% to 150%. So if, let's say, do some quick math. Let's say just for the sake of ease, we averaged 1,000 pounds per acre. This year, it would be 1,500 um, pounds, you know, maybe maybe even on up to 2,000 or 2,500 pounds in some, in some instances. So mm-hmm. those are the types of magnitudes that we have been suggesting looking at the fuel cast numbers, but also from the data from the USGS, which provides foliar cover of, of uh, I believe, 17 species of annual grasses and forbs. We don't like to trust one source of data, but like to look at a variety of, of sources of informa- data before we uh, make some inferences for informational purposes to share with people. So looking, looking at a variety of different sources, like I said, crop soil moisture through the crop chasma system, and then the USGS um, every three weeks pumping out the annual grass estimates and then fuel cast and there's others too. Rangeland analysis platform could probably also offer some insight. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that uh, this year was a significant, a significant anomaly, especially for the Northwest earlier in the year, the U S drought monitor uh, was, was not showing at all some of these data and that, People were aware of that. Where does the U.S. Drought Monitor get their data from, and do you know whether or not that's been corrected? Because I think it's the basis for some other official things like crop insurance, and it was not accurate at all for much of the spring. Yeah, well, part of the issue is that, as you know, drought is not synonymous with forage. It depends on the sector that we are talking about and it and, it, and it, it talks to your viewpoint of what drought means. I'll give you a good example. Coming into 2022, it was a carpet of grass and I mean some really robust yields across much of the southern southwestern states. So southern Arizona on into New Mexico. So if you were to visit there, you would see some drought indicators telling us, boy, we're at epic drought situation. Um, But, you know, from a livestock perspective, aside from hauling some water every now and again, you would not know it because the grass was so tall. So there's a timing component here, and we have to be careful to qualify when we talk about drought what we mean. And I don't know all the formulations that U.S. Drought Monitor authors use. You know, if you visit NIDUS, uh, I believe the National Integrated Drought Information um, System, that center there that they have, they you'd get uh, a more a richer answer to what I'm about to say. But by and large, we have mm-hmm. people around the United States tasked with evaluating a variety of indicators. Might be reservoir level. It might be snowpack. It might be, in some cases, vegetation changes measured by NDVI. So I don't think there's one canned recipe. I think different places probably use different indicators for different reasons. 
Some regions are more agricultural. Some are more, you know, extensive rangeland, et cetera. So we wouldn't necessarily use the same indicators. And one more point. If you were going to rely on snowpack as one of your primary indicators of drought, you could have a situation where snowpack isn't that great, but it's raining like cats and dogs, and therefore the forage is doing pretty well. But yet, because we use an indicator called snowpack, it may tell us we are in the, you know, the red, the yellow, the droughty categories, when in fact, if you're a livestock producer, maybe that's not as big of a concern as it is that I have plenty of grass to go around. Right. Uh, How often are the, I guess, the the satellite feed or the satellite read, how often is that data updated or how frequent is a satellite pass that updates the data that you're using for the FuelCast app? Well, let's talk briefly about the history of what went into it. So we started with MODIS, the Moderate Resolution Imaging Spectral Radiometer, and we were using 250-meter NDVI, and that would be, you know, the finished products were plus or minus 10 to 14 days it would take to composite that. But, of course, we were getting two looks a day from both the Aqua and Terra uh, MODIS platforms. And... You need to wait, though, and composite those to get cloud-free imagery and make sure that it's all quality controlled. So in reality, we wait seven to 10 days, but then MODIS has had some hiccups. You know, it's been around since plus or minus 2000, and it's at the very end of its life cycle, and it had some hiccups here earlier this year. So recognizing that, we switched to to VIRS, the VIRS instrument, and that's plus or minus a similar time frame. So we're looking at 10 to 15 to 20 days between final clean products and is very good imagery. Um, but there is a bit of a lag there. You could get it more frequently than that if you wanted to clean it yourself and weren't so concerned about clouds. So Veers ended up having some hiccups itself, so the eVeers, the expedited Veers product for those in the know. And so we were left wondering, okay, Modus is having issues. Veers was having issues. Now what? Right. So then we started looking at the TM satellite suite and about that time, Thematic Mapper, which is the 30 meter product. And that'll give you, you know, a repeat plus or minus 16 days. But with all the data available, you could probably update it every five to seven days. But our ability to leverage that data stream was taken away because of some contract problems between uh, the Forest Service and uh, Google. So I think that the contract had lapsed. So now we were out all three satellites. <laughs> so then we had to wait until Veers came back online, which it is now. So is that approximately the frequency of, of the data being updated on FuelCast, that two weeks to a month? No, it's plus or minus a month. And the reason is we had weekly in years past, no one used it. And so it was kind of uh. overwhelming. And we decided monthly would be a sweet spot. Plus there are data storage costs and also data egress costs. So if you pull those data down, somebody has to pay for that. Um, And so there are those issues. So by posting it monthly, um, we reduce those costs while still having a reasonable sweet spot. We have worked with some folks in some applications to provide some boutique kinds of calculations for smaller areas more frequently, and we'll continue to do that. But the standard product is plus or minus a month. Mm -hmm. How are the various people and agencies using FuelCast right now? 
It's a good question. I know that Predictive Services and I talk an awful lot uh, together about what we are seeing, about what the different data sources are telling us, um, and uh, what it may mean for fire behavior down the road. Uh, we are weaving FuelCast in addition to a number of other data streams into what we call our uh, workflows or our rangeland recipes, where we visit with managers to decide what kind of questions they have, um, whether they be long-term questions for something like NEPA, or they be short-term questions for something like grazing management. And we develop a workflow for them to help them make those decisions. So we're definitely using them at that kind of scale where we work with managers to devise workflows to help them make better management decisions. Um, but other than that, I'm really not aware of a lot of other uses at this time. Okay. Uh, if, if you were a agency manager, what would be some possible management responses to a year like this, say in Eastern Washington or parts of California where there's dramatically increased fire risk? That's a good question. And I think managers have a number of tools in their toolbox that they're more versed at than I am. Of course, you know, one thing that, that comes to mind that I know is being tried from an adaptive kind of perspective would be the idea of targeted grazing that we've talked about, you know, quite a bit over the, the past few years and looking at some of the issues around that. I mean, if your target is to reduce fuel, you can have prescribed fire, which has, which has its own uh, issues and limitations. You have uh, ways of reducing fuel through herbivory, okay, or we can mechanically treat the fuels somehow. You can mow them. Um, you know, so there are some, some basic sets of tools, each with a trade-off uh, associated with it. But it may also be that just because you have fuel in a given area and in a greater abundance of fuel doesn't necessarily mean that the overall uh, vulnerability of an area is, is that important. So one of the ways I think people are beginning to use this type of information to make better uh, or more informed decisions would be to say, let's not just look at fuel. Let's look at the potential fire behavior and a scenario of weather conditions, um, say out of weather, wind out of the northwest at 20 miles an hour, which is, let's say, when most of our fire activity occurs. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean in terms of values at risk? So it's not just how much fuel is there, but if there is a fire here, are we really that concerned about it? Or are there other things we should be thinking about, like lives and, and, and property and stuff like that? Are you aware of any, any um, large-scale projects around the West using grazing to target, few, or I guess, fire scenarios like that rather than just generic fuel reduction? I know they exist. I can't speak to them. And this discussion is getting more closely aligned over time with the idea of virtual fencing, which we're crossing mm -hmm. topics. But I know that there are over a dozen examples in the, in the uh, public land grazing domain where we have permittees that are partnered with, with uh, the agencies to look at 
implementing uh, virtual fencing for the purposes of uh, achieving multiple objectives, and one of those would be fuel reduction. We also have um, a graduate student, a PhD student at the University of Nevada, Reno, looking at the effects of livestock on the reduction of fuel, um, not only just the, the fact that they eat the grass, let's say, but they're also trampling on it. You know, there's also the effect of the, the cow pies on squishing the fuel down. So it's a variety of things that happens to the fuel bed, not just eating it, that changes those fire behavior expectations. Yeah, for sure. Uh, any, I'm curious whether you have any uh, projections based on climate data, not necessarily the fuel cast directly, but climate data on uh, what's anticipated for this fall and winter in preparation for the next years, because these back-to-back um, it's the, it's the, the, the sequence of, I guess, climate changes and, uh, subsequent effects on fuel that set things up for the, for the subsequent year. Uh, do you have any th- thoughts in the tea leaves on what may be out there in the near term? There are four things that I would, you know, think about considering at a national scale. First, if your cheatgrass and these large, um, and it's not just cheatgrass, as you know, Tip, it's also the uh, the Sandburst bluegrass and the Sicimbrium and all these other species conspiring to make a very flammable scenario in much of the Columbia River Basin. Uh, if you don't have fires that punch through those fuels this year, then we have a dry winter without the snow to pack everything down it seems like that would be a pretty flammable scenario especially if we have a dry spring that would be one thing to consider the other thing to consider is the mojave right now the southern part of nevada is a wipeout i mean it is so dry there that uh the the growth that has occurred there this year is negligible probably 50 to 80 percent below normal in terms of productivity as a regional average. So the Mojave Desert right now has had almost no growth. Um, and, and uh, you know, it, that that area, when we query the data and we ask, hey, are you one of these regions that greens up in the second half of the year, the first half, or are, two, are there two bumps that are roughly co-equal? And that southern half of the Mojave, from looking at almost 40 years of satellite data, tells us that that is more of a spring scenario, that even if it does rain a little bit uh, coming into the fall, we won't get large amounts of We might, but we probably won't get large amounts of fuel accumulation until at least next spring, if at all. And then I would also say the third of the four situations that I said we were considering was the monsoons that are happening right now in the southwestern U.S. It's happening again. And the yields are tremendous. I have visited a good number of fires uh, in that region working on the fires, but also kind of snooping around and looking at the regrowth that has occurred in some areas. But you look at that area around Las Vegas, Nevada, where they had the uh, Calf Canyon and Hermit's Peak fire. that was quite large. I think, you know, greater than 350,000 acres. And... There is a lot of green up occurring, particularly in a lot of those oaks that were burned. Uh, the grass seems to be responding 
quite well in a lot of cases. So, and ditto with Southern Arizona, tremendous monsoon activity, which will surely lead to robust fuel beds in the spring. The final area that we had been talking about that I think no matter what happens with the climate from here until, let's say, December, or the weather from here until December, would be that area in northern and especially northeastern California. We've been talking about that since about March. And I think the die is pretty well cast right there. We're looking at a pretty robust accumulation of fuel. And if you look on the news, um, you will notice a very large wildfire right there happening right now. Um, and I don't anticipate a lot of change from here until uh, December in those fuel beds at all. Because, again, those are predominantly cool season conditions. Mm -hmm. So we have to keep that in mind when we factor in what the weather might do. Um, you know, we may see a small bit of green up uh, in some of the area around the Palouse, you know, in the Pacific Northwest and uh, into the Columbia River Basin. We might see, as you know, a pulse. If we get good rains, we might see a small, quick pulse of green out of the cheatgrass before next year. But who knows? Right now, we all we know is that there's one heck of a lot of, of dead grass standing in the Columbia River Basin. Yeah. And if it carries over in the next year, uh, that translates into increased fire risk next year as well. Uh, last question. If I'm a rancher just hearing about this and I want to compare the data on fuel cast with what I'm seeing on the ground or have some other purposes for trying to uh, visualize the data, where would I go? Walk, walk me through how I would get to the website and take a look at um, what's available there. Yeah. Well, the dirty little secret is we're not particularly good at tools, but they're uh, tools for evaluating data. We're primarily analysts and data brokers, so we're a little weaker on the tool side than some of these other places. But there are some querying abilities that you can use if you were to visit fuelcast.net. You could go there and interact with the system and kind of poke around in there a little bit. Keep in mind that this is hard for people to wrap their heads around. Fuelcast looks forward. It is always looking forward, and it does not look backwards. Okay, I'm going to talk about looking backwards in a second, but it's always looking forward. So if you wanted to, the appropriate question to poke around in Fuelcast would be, let's say you live in um, central Washington, and let's just say you're at uh, you know 1,800 feet. You would want to go back and view the fuel cast from probably February or March and then say, what is it projecting will occur? That would be an appropriate test to compare against what you see now. It wouldn't do so well, and this is hard for people to understand, but it wouldn't do so well to go and poke, poke around in there right now because the growth has already occurred. And although people don't really know this because we've done a poor job of telling them, because it looks forward, it's not telling you what what is there right now at a given moment. What the best way to see what our best guess is as to what is there, you would need to grab the image that normally coincides with the peak. So if your peak is normally April 15th, then you'd probably want to look at the April 1st and say April 30th fuel casts 
And that would give you a plus or minus look at what <clears throat> the best guess is for yield. The fuel cast starts four months ahead of the peak at every pixel. And it knows the peak because we've had 40 years to look at it. And so the motor starts, um, you know, as I said, four weeks before or four months before the peak. And it also allows two years worth of antecedent moisture conditions. In other words, two rain years to influence this year's production projection. So that's something to consider when you're poking around. If you want to see what's here right now on, on relative and absolute scales, we actually tell people to use a different kind of tool for that. And we tell them to look at the Phenomap, which by the way, if you were to Google Phenomap and you look at the information contained there, you'll see some very large green pulses down in the Southwest. That's that monsoon I'm talking about. You can also visit the rangeland analysis platform to get information about what's here right now. So the fuel cast looks forward and the pheno, the pheno map and the wrap are looking pretty much real time right here and right now. When we get to the question of how did the year do, we're in December looking backwards, ah, now we can visit the Rangeland Production Monitoring Service because it looks backwards and asks the question, how did we do? And that's also where we get the standing dead information from. So that was maybe a less than satisfactory answer, but as you can see, you're going to want to use different tools because there's nuances about how the tools perform. Uh, and that's why we, we like to use a variety of tools. And most users, unfortunately really aren't going to know this and that's why we are working very hard with managers to develop not a user guide but a workflow that says if you spend 25 minutes and you do what we show you how to do you're going to be able to answer the question that you seek whatever the question might be maybe it's climate maybe it's projections of forage maybe it's forage that occurred last year but you're going to have to invoke a variety of tools to get at the answer. No one tool gives us everything we need. So that is helpful. One more thing about the fuel cast, and this is something worth plugging into. So, Tip, as you know, we are working on a project. You're involved with this project, and that is bringing a lot of these data layers and data together to estimate carrying capacity, let's, let's call it. And we do that a fair bit in the Forest Service, where we consider the distance to water. We consider the slope assumptions about the type of uh, herbivore that's present. Is it a wild horse? Is it a cow? If so, what kind of a breed? What is the amount of, of shrubs that are typically in the diet, maybe through fecal analysis or something? And so by having that program in place, we can ask the question, what does the normal carrying capacity look like? Question number one. Number Question number two is, what do we think it's going to be like this year? That's where you would plug in, and that's where, where, where we do plug in, fuel cast information early in the year before managers are meeting with their permittees. We like to plug that into a model like that and suggest, you know what, overall, 
we think this year is well above normal. And uh, you might consider that in your discussion with your permittees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this appears to be uh, the beginning of a golden age for tools based on what has been a lot of data, but hasn't been made available in a way that people could interact with it unless they had access to expensive data sets and pretty fancy analysis software. Uh, so I'm pretty excited about it. Well, we've got a long way to go. We are still, you're right, I think we are at the golden age or we're, we're right at the tip of the golden age, really. We need another five to 10 years. You, know, you won't even come close to recognizing the data front in 10 years that you see now. The thing mm-hmm. that we need the greatest improvement as a profession, I think when it comes to making use of these data is true decision support systems that take into account multiple factors that are very specific to a question being asked. You know, what what is the expected change in fire behavior this year? What is the expected change in carrying capacity this year? So on and so forth. So we've got a long ways to go, but we're getting a lot closer than we were, you know, than when I started 20 five odd years ago yeah that's encouraging and we'll keep talking about it uh, matt i'll let you go today and uh, thanks again for your time glad to meet and i hope to talk with you again soon have a good day thank you for listening to the art of range podcast you can subscribe to and review the show through itunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode just search for art of range If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Thank you.